Welcome everyone to the Deep Dive, the podcast that skips small talk and goes straight for the concepts that shape our thinking and behavior. In this podcast, cold expertise is defenestrated as warm philosophy is enthroned in an attempt to explore the field in which we're all scientists looking for answers, living well. Hello world, welcome to another episode of The Deep Dive with Eyal Shai. My guest today is Nita Jane. Hi, Nita. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and I did try to pronounce your name better than the spelling suggests, so hopefully I made it. Yeah, no, I really appreciate it, definitely. Americans usually just say Nita, like <laughs> I need a pen or something. So yeah, no, it's, it's great. I don't mind any pronunciation, but yeah, I always appreciate the attempt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, this has been uh, more uh, small talk than is usually allowed. So with that, I'll, straight, I'll go straight to the thing itself. Uh, what is an idea that has helped you live well? Sure. So one thing that has really shaped my understanding of health and disease, and even from a personal perspective, is this idea that we are not just individual beings. We're actually something called holobionts. And the word holobiont comes from hologenome theory. And basically, a holobiont is a host plus all of its accompanying symbionts. And symbionts includes all the microbes that live in and on us. So that's bacteria, archaea, viruses, protists, fungi, um, bacteriophages, which is a specific type of virus. But this basically implies that we're not just people Um, as individuals. We're actually walking, talking ecosystems. And this not only has implications for the evolutionary record, but it also has implications for the way we treat health and disease. Because if we are, in fact, these ecosystems, then that means that our health is dependent upon the health of those symbionts that we carry. And the gut microbiome is in large part where most of these symbionts reside. Um, but of course, all the orifices in, um, in our bodies have their own respective microbiome. There's a skin microbiome. Um, you know, there's so much communication and crosstalk between different organ systems. There's a gut-brain access. There's a gut liver pancreatic access. Um, there's the get skin access. So there's a lot of crosstalk and communication happening with all of these different organisms um, with the tissues and organs in our bodies. So I think elucidating that communication is really central to health and disease. And I think for me personally, I developed some really systemic health issues in the aftermath of receiving really broad spectrum antibiotics. And this, this introduced a lot of dysbiosis. And, you know, dysbiosis in and of itself is not a very helpful word because dysbiosis mostly just means that there's some sort of imbalance in the microbial ecosystem, but it doesn't tell you what exactly the problem is because there can be lots of different kinds of dysbiosis. There can be fermentative dysbiosis, putrefactive dysbiosis. It's just this generalized term Which, say, which is saying that there's been some shift in the ecosystem that is detrimental to the host. And that's all it means. Um, it's kind of mm. like that it's kind of like that Anna Karenina quote, um, you know the opening line, "All happy families are alike, but all every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. It's like that with the with the microbiome. Like when things are going smoothly, you know there's 
Well, actually, it's not quite like that because there's many different ways to be healthy. But the second part with that Anna Karenina principle that there's many ways for things to go wrong, that very much applies to human health and microbiome dysbiosis because the thing is there is no one standard for healthy because healthy depends on so many things like um, geography, climate, food availability, um, ancestry, um, socioeconomic factors. All of these things will inform Mm -hmm. what healthy looks like for one person. But yeah, when things get messed up, there's a lot of ways that can go wrong. And for me, my life's journey has mostly been a way, you know, I've been looking for a way to restore good health. I've been looking for a way to restore ecological balance in my body and also spread this message that respecting our ecology, our inner ecology is really important. And I mean, I mean, that could even have a spiritual implication, I'm sure, but Um, Just the fact that we co-evolved with these microbes, they continue to have a disproportionate influence on our health today. And I think that's being more and more elucidated um, from their role in not only gut issues like C. difficile colitis and Crohn's disease and and, um, and IBS, but also in, you know, diseases that affect the brain, neurodegenerative stuff like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. You also see a lot of implications with autism. Um, That's being more widely elucidated. So um, especially also when it comes to metabolic health, like when it comes to glucose control, um, insulin sensitivity, they have a large role in that. So the implications are really endless when it comes to how much these organisms impact us, um, not just from like an evolutionary standpoint in terms of like filling in gaps in the fossil record, but also today it's like immediately relevant. And I think that's the issue that that's like the one idea that I would like to share with an audience is the idea that our health is dependent upon the health of so many other microorganisms that we don't even think about on a day-to-day basis. We're not thinking about this. We're just like thinking about our our own stuff. But I, if we mm-hmm. respect them and honor them and tend to them, tend to that inner microbial garden, like, you know, maintaining good circadian rhythms, like consuming adequate amounts of fiber, that can really make a huge difference, not only from like a day-to-day perspective, but longevity um, in terms of like living longer, maybe like getting up to that centenarian mark while still avoiding chronic disease, I think it's a huge part of the equation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's so interesting. Uh, My grandma is about to hit the centenarian mark. And um, interestingly, I only learned today that in old age, some um, imbalances or maybe uh, inflammations actually can cause people to have a, a massive decline in mental function, which I I was surprised to hear. But apparently, if you have uh, some sort of inflammation at that age, a lot of the times it's going to cause you to be completely confused and maybe demented in some way. Um, so I really love the the whole perspective here that you're because it it is really it really is a, a paradigm shift in a sense. I think that most of us recognize that we're that we are part of an ecosystem, and I hear a lot of people talking about how we should um, tend to things that are around us in terms of uh, you know being outside is good for you, and of course other people and how they feel and all that. But uh, this is quite novel to me to hear that. You know, we should treat ourselves as more like gardens and ecosystems that need to be uh, balanced in a way. But I really like it because it is just like, um, I mean, in a sense, we we already think of ourselves as 
sort of machines, but I don't know how much we see ourselves as, as an ecosystem. And I, I want to kind of pause and think about uh, that aspect of it, because for some reason, we, we have our, our systems, right? Like endocrine system and uh, whatever nervous system. And intuitively, it feels to me like we're treating them as part of a machine, not as something that's living, while all the bacteria and uh, other microbiomes are something different. Like, wh why do you think that is? Um, so the question is, why do we treat organ systems as something that's mechanical and we treat the microbiome as something that's right. living? Yeah, that's yeah. a great question. I think that this actually stems from the specialization setup that we have in America. So um, actually in Western medicine in general, uh, modern conventional medicine tends to embrace this idea that um, that that we have these separate organ systems and that they somehow exist in isolation from one another. And yeah, uh, like you're saying, there is this sort of static aspect to it when we're talking about a lot of these things, like for example, the musculoskeletal system, we usually think of that as like a static system, but it turns out that, you know, the musculoskeletal system, it actually releases signals um, to the rest of the body. And there's a lot of like the molding and repairing that goes on in terms of like bone repair and bone breakdown uh, and like building bones, um, the osteoclast and osteoblast activity, that is orchestrated by microbes as well. So there is this crosstalk between the musculoskeletal system, which we think it's just bone, that it's just there, mm -hmm. um, but it's actually like in communication with these living microbes. So um, I think one of the reasons that we have this mechanical view of the human body is because of specialization. Because specialization says that, you know, the brain is the separate organ system and, you know, like the stomach exists by itself and that all of these different organs, they're just like in isolated. But that's not the truth because these organ systems are always communicating with one another. Cells communicate with one another. Tissues communicate with one another organ systems communicate with one another, and all of these communicate with the microbes in your body. So I think one of the problems is that because we practice medicine in a specialized way, like if you have a kidney problem, you go to a nephrologist. If you have a problem with your brain, you go to the neurologist. Because we're practicing medicine in this specialized manner, we're not elucidating the crosstalk and the communication events that are breaking down and leading to disease. This is what's making for in, for like imprecise medicine. Um, I think because a lot of the time, the organ in which you're observing the symptom is not the organ or the or the origin of the problem itself. So like if you're having an issue with your brain in terms of like as you were alluding to um, with the, with your grandmother. Um, inflammaging can happen. I mean, of course, your grandmother's in good health, but in older age, inflammaging or that low-grade chronic inflammation can lead to memory problems, can lead to brain fog, um, can lead to depersonalization. Honestly, I mean, inflammaging can happen at any age, but yeah, definitely aging can be a factor for increasing the risk of certain things if we're not living in accordance with a certain lifestyle. Um, but like you're saying, like if you're experiencing these problems and they're affecting your brain, your brain might not be where the problem is starting. The problem could be starting in the gut and translating up to the brain. Like for example, we have seen that certain types of dysbiosis can cause a buildup of amyloid beta in the brain. So that can, you know, that's like one particular way that this can happen. But I mean, Alzheimer's itself, 
you know, beta amyloid is more of a collateral damage issue. It's more of a bystander effect than the actual cause, but that's a discussion for another time. But um, definitely it's, it's worthy to note that where you're seeing the problem might not be the origin of the problem. And so, I mean, how often though do you have a neurologist consult with a gastroenterologist? That doesn't happen. People are very much staying in their pockets of mm -hmm. specialty. And this is the issue. Um, also, there really has not been much of an incorporation of microbiome science into medicine as of now. It hasn't made it to clinical prime time. And I mean, until it does, I don't think we're really going to have effective medicine. Um, I think medicine needs to be looking at these communication events. It needs to be looking at energy production because like, honestly, I mean, chronic disease, there has to be an energy component to it because see energy in the form of ATP is necessary in order to one, to maintain structures, but two, to repair them. So if that is not happening, if you're seeing breakdown in any systems, that means there's an energy problem. There's some sort of energetic process that is not happening correctly. And of course, you know, the mitochondria are responsible for our energy production in terms of making us sufficient amounts mm -hmm. of ATP, which powers everything else that our bodies do. And we're just not looking at medicine from a microbial standpoint, from a, from a mitochondrial standpoint. We're looking at it from a very top level superficial view. And that's the reason that we're looking at it as a mechanical thing, because once you start, you know, like once you like put our body under the magnifying glass and, and kind of like taking a more fractal approach to it, like looking at it at closer and closer levels, because like not, not just looking at the top layer, not just looking at the surface layer, but like looking underneath what's beneath this, what's beneath that. And you'll see like the lower down you go, the, like the closer in you magnify, you're going to notice that these are communication events. And this is the origin of problems because we're, we're only looking at stuff from a very superficial standpoint because at least in the West, we have this diagnose then drug paradigm. So it's like, I'll diagnose you with X disease and I will give you this drug or this treatment protocol to fix it. But that's not looking at the communication events that are breaking down. It's not root cause analysis. It's not looking at the heart of the issue. And that's the reason that we see this divide between, you know, um, the way medicine is practiced, which is being kind of like a a very detached approach to things versus the reality, which is that all our systems are integrated and in communication with one another. Yeah. Well, I love it because it's starting to kind of um, shed light on the, on the path forward as we're going to maybe veer into the, into the realm of what you said, that it has spiritual consequences as well, because I've already noticed a shift here of looking at things, not as just these like local failures, but more like breakdowns of communication, right? And kind of um, taking that and applying it to other areas of our, of our lives is, is very tempting at this point, and we will do it. Um, but I'd like to, I'm interested in, um, yeah, in, in your journey of kind of delving into this, into this, um, how, how did you first come across these ideas? And since these things are so complex and, you know, it's, it's very easy to see that a lot of things that we do in, in Western medicine are wrong because so many things are still considered, um, you know, lacking a cure, namely autoimmune disease. Like maybe that's, that's a really good example. Uh, we, we're basically out of ideas, uh, a lot of times. Um, but 
it is very complex and it, it is very hard to work on these things by deconstructing and isolating a problem and experimenting them in the way that uh, Western science is used to doing, right? Which is probably why not a lot of progress is made in those areas. So for you, how, um, how are you going about trying to um, re-establish communication channels, basically, in, in your own ecosystem? Yeah, absolutely. You know, thank you for that question. Um, I think one thing is that the prevailing narrative is one of downward causality. And this is a philosophical concept, and it comes from Douglas Hofstadter, which basically says that the big things are in control of whatever else comes beneath their umbrella. So it's assuming that anything large is the dominant over, you know, anything that's smaller. And I sort of reject this view of thinking, um, mostly because of like the experiences that I've had. And um, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that our microbes are actually the ones pulling the proverbial puppet strings and they're the ones in charge. So downward causality would say that since we're the larger organism, we're in charge of the microbes, but they very much dictate a lot of our behaviors in terms of appetite in terms of mood, in terms of cognition, neurogenesis. And a lot of this is driven by like the production of secondary metabolites like butyrate. Um, but like getting back to your original question, um, which is about like how does one go about reestablishing balance in ecology? Um, well, I sort of started delving into this pretty early on after having antibiotic-induced damage to a lot of different organ systems in my body. Um, I had developed seizures in the aftermath. I had pretty pretty intense GI complications. Um, I had peripheral neuropathy, um, dysautonomia. All kinds of things were going wrong simultaneously in my body, and. I th that's uh, excuse me for something but that that is like that comes right after a treatment that's gone wrong where you prescribe like too much antibiotics basically or when in at the time where it wasn't fitting or so i that have been follows right after right um so the interesting thing is with the fluoroquinolone class of antibiotics which is the one that i had received oftentimes you will start to have symptoms weeks or even months after taking taking the course of antibiotics. And the reason being is that there seems to be like a certain threshold that has to be crossed for you to start exhibiting symptoms. And this particular class of antibiotics is considered to be toxic to the mitochondria. And like the reason being is they they target um they target like DNA like uh, an enzyme, DNA topoisomerase, I believe. And this ends up being something that your microbes as well as your human mitochondria have in common. So that that's the reason that a lot of the time it's damaging to human mitochondria mm. as well, because they have that close evolutionary history. Endosymbiotic theory suggests that mitochondria are actually ancient bacteria that became part of our, or, uh, part of our cells. And that's how, um, how they enable aerobic respiration. That's the reason that we're able to tolerate oxygen without getting poisoned, um, you know, because like oxygen, of course, produces free radicals, but, you know, we make superoxide dismutase and catalase, so we're able to breathe mm -hmm. oxygen and still survive. But um, yeah, mitochondria are the reason we can do that. And uh, so this particular class of antibiotics, it's it's 
you know, the damage can be quite insidious because some people, they take it one or two times without any adverse side effects and maybe the third prescription. Like it, a lot of people describe the event as a, a time bomb going off. And it literally does feel like a bomb is going off in your body because when things break down, it happens so suddenly and it's so alarming and frightening. It's like the world is pulled out from under you and wow. everything becomes quite unrecognizable because, I mean, at least for me, I was a relatively healthy college student. I had some health issues, but I was managing them. And then, you know, I was in a vegetative state for five or six years after this course of antibiotics, and I'm still dealing with the fallout to a large extent. Um, wow. I have regained a lot of functionality since then, but it was horrible. Like I couldn't drive anymore. Um, I had very little motor control. Um, I just, everything was over. And, um, the other thing is like, in addition to the neurological symptoms I was experiencing, I was also dealing with really severe psychiatric effects. Um, I experienced suicidal ideation, psychosis, um, just a lot of depersonalization. And I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like we have this division between neurology and psychiatry, but it's artificial because the same brain that is controlling your motor control it's also responsible for regulating mood. So I think it just kind of speaks to the folly of the stigma around psychiatric conditions, but not, you know, not having that, um, not having that attitude towards other things that impact the brain. So, um, that's just more, more of a side note, but, um, yeah, so I developed systemic issues after this particular course of antibiotics and, um, there's actually a really large global community of people who have been harmed by this class of drugs called Floxies. And even the world's premier scientific journal, Nature, in 2016, had a feature on how these antibiotics can be really harmful. It was called When Antibiotics Turn Toxic. And it was talking about, I believe it was a Danish researcher who had suffered some ill effects after taking this class of drugs. But still, doctors in America say that we prescribe it like water. We prescribe it like candy. And wow. the thing is, it's not safe as a first-line drug. It shouldn't be used as a first-line. It should be used as a last resort. That's the purpose for which it was intended. But it's often being used for non-complicated UTI infections, um, simple bronchitis, infections for which there's a much safer class of drugs that can be used. Um, but I was given these drugs just in case I did not have an active infection at the time. So pretty much for me, it was just all negative. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, the road to recovery was really long and hard and I'm still on it to a large extent, but, um, things that really helped in terms of reestablishing my gut ecology was pursuing FMT, uh, fecal microbiota transplantation. But finding a suitable donor was very much a needle in a haystack endeavor. So the vast majority of donors I received, I did not respond, respond well to. Either they exacerbated my symptoms or mostly, mostly exacerbated my symptoms. But once in a while, I found a donor that I did respond well to. And that just got me thinking that the way that we screen donors it's very superficial at, at the time being. So like the criteria for donors and as, as well as donor patient matching, that could be much more stringent than it is in its current form. So the way we currently screen donors is that we'll do some basic blood testing for things like hep A, hep B, HIV, um, like a basic CBC, maybe a CMP panel, um, just to make sure that a person's in relatively good health. And then they'll do some basic stool testing, um, which is usually just a culture testing for ova and parasites, um, maybe H. pylori antigen at the more advanced laboratories, but it's a very simple 
screening. And then, of course, they take a detailed health history in terms of family risk of GI malignancies or, you know, if there's a family history of cancer, stuff like that. But Mm -hmm. this screening is pretty inadequate because a lot of the American population, even if they're not exhibiting symptoms, they could just be in a prodromal period. So a prodromal period is the phase between when disease pathology starts and you actually start to show symptoms. And the reason being is that, you know, Western lifestyles, they're conducive to disease. They really are. Like the diet is heavily refined and processed. Um, our sleep situation is is leaves a lot to be desired. Like hardly any of us get adequate sleep. Um, just we're ra- rather sedentary as a population. Um, m- you know, like metabolic markers of health are – you know, are not ideal for the vast majority of Americans. So the environment that you're picking donors from is in itself not ideal, not conducive to health. So that ends up being a huge problem um, first off. But the thing is that we're not also looking at like what microbial populations these donors are carrying. So we're basically just saying, okay, they don't have C. diff, they don't have H. pylori, Like they don't have Shigella or Salmonella, therefore they're good. Like, no, you also have to be looking at whether they possess health-promoting bacteria. Do they have adequate numbers of butyrate producers? Do they carry enough Fecalobacterium, Roseburia, Blauchia, Acromancia, all of these bacteria that are associated with with beneficial health and like maintaining the integrity of the the gut epithelial barrier, um, maintaining, maintaining the ecological environment and keeping it you know, free from pathogen invasion. Like we're, we also need to be looking at that part of the equation, not just are they free from pathogens, but also do they possess health promoting bacteria? And this is not part of the screening process currently. And I think this is one of the reasons why we don't have very good outcomes when it comes to FMT in general, but also the reason why it's impossible to compare across FMT studies because everyone is using different material right? There's just, there's no homogenation. There's no standardization when it comes to what are we giving people? So oftentimes you'll see conflicting results of whether FMT works for a given condition or not. Like you might see see two or three studies um, on whether FMT is effective for ulcerative colitis and they could have really different, really different effects. Like some could say that it works well. Another could say that it doesn't work at all. A third could say no effect. And this is in large part because there is no standardization of FMT. Every single time, it's different material. So until we have some sort of standardization in place, it's really impossible to tell what FMT could or couldn't work for because it's very dependent on donor quality. And so this is something that I'm really quite passionate about in terms of wanting to get better systems in place so that A, like, you know, there should be access to this for patients who need it, but B, it should be safe and effective. And I feel like there's just so much we could do to make the process better than it is in its current form. But yes, yeah, Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, uh, it it sounds like, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not very knowledgeable in that field, but it rings true if only for the reason that, like I said, we're basically looking at a, a whole class of diseases that we're kind of scratching our heads and are not sure what to do, what to do about them. And it's really interesting. I really appreciate you kind of bringing the idea that it has to do with uh, microbiomes because um, for me, these things seem to be 
at the intersection between the mental and the physical. So I was just trying to think about, you know, how to kind of conceptualize this and approach these things. So things like um, autoimmune diseases, but also, let's say, anxiety disorder, which is just like it's it's such a, a tricky thing, right? It's like, is it physical? Is it mental? So, yeah, we have the term psychosomatic. Um, nice. But what does it mean? What do we do about it? And now that you're kind of introducing me to this idea of, of us as an ecosystem, that's that's really exciting because I really want to know uh, what can be done to maybe work more holistically about these things. So I understand that um, turning your attention to your gut health and gut uh, microbiome would be one of the first things to do. Um, are there any areas in the in the body where there are also microbiomes that are comparable to that? Um, I understand that it's probably the biggest one, but uh, are there other areas that you uh, focused your attention to? Yeah, so the gut microbiome does tend to have the most, the by far the largest impact on the body in terms of just where the vast majority of microbes are concentrated. Um, the gut microbiome usually is referring to the colonic microbiome in the large intestine or the colon. And that tends to be the one that gets the most attention. Um, but of course, your small intestine also has a microbiome. It's certainly less diverse, um, which is in large part because of its higher pH. And there's fewer niches that microbes can occupy there. But pretty much every part of your body has its own unique microbiome. Um, the skin microbiome gets a lot of attention as well, just because of its implications for conditions like atopic dermatitis, psoriasis, eczema, um, even acne, of course, which affects pretty much everyone at some point in their lives. And this crosstalk, you know, um, there there have been um, I, this one idea proposed topical um, topical skin microbiota transplants and. Some, some researchers have used that as a way to address certain autoimmune-related skin diseases. And yeah, there, that's been used with varying success so far. So that's something that people are definitely looking into. But a lot of the time, targeting the gut microbiome will also resolve skin ailments. Um, we have seen that in a, lot of, a number of studies so far. Um, so probably the skin microbiome gets quite a bit of attention um, in addition to the gut microbiome. But pretty much every part of the body has its own unique microbiome. And even areas that we previously thought were sterile, those have been elucidated um, and like shown to have their own respective microbiome. For a long time, we thought that the lungs were sterile. And it turns out that's not true. Like um, the alveoli, which are the little sacs that, mm -hmm. like the little sacs that um, constitute the branches of the lungs, those have microbes as, and this actually has implications for things like asthma, um, COPD, um, for, for things that affect like the airways. Um, when the lung microbiome is thrown off balance, that can introduce a lot of, a lot of issues with, um, breathing and other diseases that could, there's just like so much that could be happening. Um, and, also, the bladder, for example, for the long time, we thought that the bladder was sterile. It turns out that also has its own microbiome, um, you know, especially because, you know, when it comes to doing UTI testing, we rely on culture. Um, and like culture works because basically 
Culture is very biased towards the detection of E. coli, which is the causative agent of most UTIs. But um, if you were to run PCR or, you know, some sort of metagenomic sequencing on urine, you find that there's a lot of commensal bacteria in urine that mm. are just part of the bladder. And it, it just, it turns out that like nothing is really sterile the way we think it is. One question that is still up for debate, like this is still a kind of a, a point of contention among microbiome researchers is whether, is whether the uterus is sterile because um, it's still an open question of whether colonization begins at birth, like when a child passes through the vaginal canal, is that where it starts or does it start in utero? And hmm. that's something that we still don't have a definitive answer for. Um, there's, there's a few theories that, you know, um, there's a few pieces of evidence for both camps, but I don't think we have a, a surefire answer for that yet. Um, I would venture to guess. Yeah, it's, it is interesting because I mean, there's just so much, I feel like a lot of mechanisms are more mysterious than we think. Like for example, it turns out that during, during labor, like the longer labor is, um, the more that baby picks up mom's fecal microbes. And that seems mm -hmm. to be because during labor, the permeability of the of of the colon changes and that seems to be that seems to happen so that baby can acquire mom's microbiome to an extent because you know in the beginning um, baby's immune systems are not well developed or fully formed so they do rely on mom's host microbiome as well as the antibodies that she transfers um, via passive uh, you know that she transfers to baby passively via breast milk and also just via the umbilical cord in utero in order to stay healthy and fight off infection during those early years um, when baby's immune system is still developing. So that's also an open question. Like where, when does colonization truly begin? And that's a bit of an open question. Yeah. But it seems, it seems that there, there are a lot of these in this, in this field. Um, yeah. One thing I'm wondering about, of course, we already mentioned that, you know, this can affect mood, this can affect cognition and, um, so basically anything that we call the mind. Um, so in, in terms of, of healing those things, is it also that there is causality the, the other way around at all? Um, and I'll, I'll share with you why I'm thinking about this, because recently I was talking with a friend about um, the placebo effect, which we know is is the basically that spontaneous healing starts uh, close to the moment of when we begin to expect some sort of of um, of Im Im uh, improvement in our condition at least that's what we that's what we see right a person can even just see a doctor coming to them and putting their arm on the head and the doctor could be an actor of course and just say you know things are going to get better for you and the person uh, just kind of internalizes it and seemingly miraculously just gets better and uh, I always thought that if this is the case there is no law of physics that stops us from initiating our own placebo effect uh, 
um, processes, basically. Uh, and it, it's really interesting. Like the placebo effect is uh, doctors kind of like it without understanding it. And then a lot of people in alternative medicine kind of don't like it, even though it's as woo as some of the stuff that apparently triggers it or tries to perform better than it. Anyway, the placebo effect is, is really interesting to me. Um, and, and it's really hard for me to run an experiment, but basically in my life, I always felt that since I had this idea, it's like, why should I wait for a, a doctor or a pill to trigger that effect in me if I can trigger it in myself? And now I'm thinking, hey, this is all communication, right? Communication has to do with some sort of um, harmony or, or fittingness or mutual understanding between, between um, the parts that communicate. So I'm just now completely going out on a limb here and I'm going to ask you if this can be used in any way to uh, heal a microbiome, any kind of mental activity that we can engage in. Actually, yes. I do think that there are things that we can do from a mental health perspective that would positively influence the microbiome. And there there have been some studies done on mindsets and how that could impact host, you know, human physiology. And Aliyah Crum, she's a Stanford neuroscientist who has looked a lot in into the connection between mindsets and all these other factors that impact our health. And she found that just the way that we're perceiving the food that we eat changes our physiology. So for example, she had done this cross arm, uh, a crossover study where she had told people that they were drinking a sensible, nutritious milkshake. And she had told the group the second time that they were drinking a, um, a very indulgent, fat-rich, sugar-rich milkshake. And turns out, First of all, um, she gave them the identical milkshake both times. She just changed the the messaging. (laughs) And when she told volunteers that they were eating something indulgent, that they were drinking something that was just full of calories and really satisfying, that actually lessened their hunger and their appetite when they were done. It was more satiating. And this also corresponded to their ghrelin levels. So it changed the levels of a hunger regulating hormone in the body, the thought Hmm. that they're having something more satiating. So that's just like one example that sort of touches on metabolic health and endocrine health to a certain extent. But it does seem that the way that we're thinking or also just our attitudes, our positivity, our stress levels, they also impact our gut microbes, definitely. And a lot of this can be explained by cortisol-mediated effects. So cortisol is often considered a stress hormone in the body, and it is often like chronically elevated in modern societies just because we have so many stressors that have the potential to elevate cortisol, and this was not the case in our evolutionary history, um, just in the way that, you know, getting pinged or, you know, like Slack messages, text messages, emails, that can all lead to chronically elevated cortisol. And of course, sleep deprivation increases cortisol further in this vicious cycle whereby 
also cortisol, it, it impairs proper functioning of the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of your brain responsible for good decision making. So chronically elevated cortisol, it's a huge problem. But cortisol also affects the integrity of the gut barrier. And that could, of course, impact the types of microbes that are able to adhere to the lining and also um, the types of microbes that are able to colonize and make a home in your body. So I don't think it's at all far-fetched to say that mindset and and like perception affects host physiology even to the extent of influencing microbiome health. I think that's quite plausible and there is a good bit of evidence suggesting that there's likely a connection there. But definitely, I do think it's bidirectional um, in the sense that our microbes are impacting our mind. Um, they do impact our appetite, things like cravings, um, all kinds of things that we're just – it's happening at a, subliminal, at a subliminal level. It's under our conscious awareness, but nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, we are also impacting – our microbes by the things that we're thinking. But the interesting thing is there seems to be twice as much communication from the enteric nervous system in the gut up to the brain versus in the opposite direction. So that's something that I've considered is kind of interesting. But um, yeah, so there actually, some of your nervous system does reside in the gut. Um, It's called the enteric nervous system. And these are the gut linings that line your gastrointestinal tract. So yeah, part of your nervous system is in your GI tract. Um, but definitely these, you know, the signals that are transmitted will definitely have an impact. Um, and I think that's something that will continue to unravel in the years to come. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I can't wait to hear more about this, honestly. I mean, I recently read a book by Carlo Rovelli, uh, the famous physicist who basically argues that the uh, maybe the solution to the quantum theory conundrum and the weirdness of it is that basically everything that we observe in the universe is a manifestation of some sort of communication of two things coming together. And we show we see the effects and they are ephemeral and they pass away, but it's constantly, uh, there is actually, we're not going to find atoms, atoms in the in the philosophical sense of like the smallest building blocks. It's not what we're looking for, but we're looking for um, interactions. And he says, everything is an interaction. And now take that with what you're saying. It's, it's very interesting for me to notice how in my mind now I see myself not as, you know, this unchanging self or, or thing that's there. And I think that's, a point that a lot of uh, mindfulness um, practitioners make where you where you get to a point where you say there is no stable thing that is that is an eye or anything like that and that's kind of talked about a lot Uh, but see yourself also in terms of your body not as a self, right? So not the mental side, but also your body is could be seen as a phenomenon arising out of communication between billions of different cells of different species, right? As well, as we're now saying. And I feel like uh, part of healing for me when I do need to go and try and heal something is... I think that a lot of the stuff that we're doing to 
fix things could be maybe liking to like speaking all the time. If it's the doctors prescribing drugs, trying to change things, trying to get them right or something like that. And now as I, if, as I, as I'm talking to you and I hear this from you, I kind of feel validated in the sense that, um, I had a go-to kind of thought where I'm thinking about myself as not resisting anything in the universe and even letting like cosmic rays pass through me and being quite passive in the sense. And now it seems like a good way to be in the sense that you can allow communication in this way. And if we liking all these more aggressive actions to like speaking, what about doing some listening? And letting these different parts of us, um, you know, reach out to one another, maybe see what the other thing needs and have that mindset. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but it's, it seems to be that this whole notion that we are an ecosystem maybe leads to a more um, gentle approach to things right rather than like going in and bam 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 like starting to just nail um yeah using the hammer to like drive nails all over the place to like fix that hole or something like that and more naturally let um wounds heal right definitely and sometimes some researchers will actually liken broad spectrum antibiotics um, to using an AK-47 to kill a mosquito because right. there's just so <laughs> much so much collateral damage. It's utterly unnecessary the lengths we go to um, to to get to to get to a solution. It's just like it's way too destructive. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not m only more gentle, but it's also just a more fulfilling view of the reality. Um, but I think you know, kind of going back to what you're talking about in terms of communication, I think communication is the root of everything. Like it's definitely the root of all pathology, but this is existing on so many levels. Like you're saying the communication between a doctor and a patient, that is having an influence on, uh, for example, that obviously informs the placebo effect, which is part of the overall treatment effect. But then you're also having these intracellular communication events in our bodies. Like our cells are talking to one another. Um, the tissues are communicating with one another. But our bodies themselves speak a lot of different languages. I believe, if I remember correctly, it's over 70 languages. And this includes things like Jackstat, Notch, Delta, Hedgehog. These are all languages that our bodies use to communicate. And, the, you know, oh. this is via signaling transduction. And... Um, it's, it's interesting when you're talking about disease pathology, it is a breakdown in a communication event. Like in type 2 diabetes, like uh, the beta cells in the pancreas are going deaf to the signal of insulin. Um, and like so many diseases, there's just like a breakdown in communication. And yeah, I definitely, I definitely think that um, kind of like respecting those communication events or trying to restore normal communication is a huge part of of, of practicing effective medicine. I do think that's the wave of the future. Just not looking at things in isolation anymore, looking at the big picture. Um, that's definitely going to be the path forward. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, listening is also a big part of the equation for sure. Cause I think, you know, we don't listen enough to like what our bodies are telling us a lot of the time. I think there is this tendency to kind of 
ignore symptoms until they get just like too awful to continue to yeah. let slide. Yeah. But yeah, the, 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 the way I kind of explain, because I thought a lot about the placebo effect and the way that I conceptualize it today is basically, um, has a lot to do with what passes in consciousness. And I think what passes in consciousness is really important to pay attention to, not in the sense that we should identify with it, but um, these are like some important signals about what is going in in our body. And I think the placebo effect basically kicks in when there is some sort of... um, and this need not be completely explicit and conscious, right? It could maybe stay implicit, but when there is some sort of awareness to to fittingness, to harmony, again after a period of really not feeling right, or you know maybe the body has been sending you these messages as you say, and we're just uh, too damn busy working or something so that we don't pay attention, and then the next thing you know we're we're sick. Um, and the placebo effect seems to be kicking in whenever there is renewed awareness of future harmony, right? And so what, what's exciting to me about this is, first of all, I, I can work on it. I, I can bring it about without needing to be um, soothed like a child by somebody else in a, in a lab coat or by taking a sugar pill or anything like that. I, I can just do it with myself because it's work that I can do. I can remember to go back and think more about fittingness and about harmony and perceive that and know that it will do its work. But it's there's also a sense in there that the moment you go back to trusting your body to do the right thing, rather than you know treating it as, as this separate thing that needs to be worked on with all with drugs and whatnot, um, that's when spontaneously it's, it just responds with with healing, I think. So there's also a, um, and, and trust, of course, is, yeah, I guess that's that's a big aspect of, of communication. So again, very um, fitting in with, with the rest of this uh, kind of paradigm you're bringing to the table here. Definitely. And I love the idea that you incorporate the the concept of hope as being integral to the placebo effect, because definitely um, anticipation and belief is a large part of it. And that informs the effect. And if you're skeptical, you're less likely to experience the benefits of placebo for sure. And I do like the, like the implication that you make that um, our bodies do have the ability to heal. um, If only we give them the right resources. I think that our bodies are very intelligent in the way that they're made to repair. And actually, I think that the ability to use externally obtained energy to repair from within is a facet of light, of life in general. I think it's a core defining feature of life. I think it's one, universal to life, and it's also unique to life. So um, that's another thing that we could potentially unravel a little bit. But um, just Mm -hmm. going back to your idea that our body doesn't necessarily need 
outside intervention um, in terms of drugs to function optimally. Of course, you know, drugs being something that's synthetic, but of course, synthetic things also have some natural basis. Anyway, um, just the idea that we might not need as much intervention as we think we do. I think that idea is, is very pervasive in medicine. It even bleeds into our naming structures. Like for example, there is a target called mTOR and it stands for mammalian target of rapamycin. And I have a lot of problems with this naming convention. Like, first of all, mammalian is redundant. It shouldn't even be in the name. Um, like, you know, target, like fine, but like of that should like, it's a preposition. It doesn't belong in there, but having rapamycin in the name suggests that this particular receptor only exists in order to receive the drug rapamycin, which is not the hmm. case because a lot right. of things bind to mTOR, like resveratrol binds there. Um, a, a large number of bioflavonoids bind to mTOR and so many things influence it that have nothing to do with rapamycin. So that naming convention implies that our body is made to receive drugs. And this is really problematic in a lot of ways because like literally, like we have had this, this, you know, this receptor since the inception of our species long before rapamycin was, was developed. So, you know, the fact that you're naming parts of the body after drugs is highly problematic in my opinion, because, you know, it's, it's implying that our bodies require the drug in order to function, which just isn't the case. Like so many things um, can can bind to that. And mTOR inhibition, it's actually associated with longevity. So like, you know, rapamycin has been used as an anti-aging drug in a lot of clinical trials, but, you know, metformin has also shown some promise in that regard. But again, these are these are things that were developed by humans, but lots of other things can inhibit mTOR as well that would have, you know, been things that our species encountered long before we conceived of pharmaceuticals. So I definitely, yeah. I feel like until we embrace the fact that, you know, we lived for quite some time and managed to make it as a species, there must be some knowledge that our bodies possess in terms of knowing how to repair, um, knowing how to survive, knowing how to reproduce, you know, knowing how to be, you know, physically fit in a Darwinian sense, like fit enough to survive and reproduce and pass things on to the next generation. Like we know how to do that as a species. And I think tapping into yeah. that knowledge is important. And I think it's really unfortunate that only like alternative medicine seems to be the camp looking at these things because Alternative medicine, it's just, it's like the Wild West, honestly, because, you know, you do have a lot of snake oil salesmen peddling a lot of different things, but then, you know, you do have some viable therapies on the market as well, because FMD, that was originally alternative. Um, like now it's more widely accepted, at least for C. difficile colitis that's resistant to multiple courses of antibiotics. But I think just the time that it takes for a clinically proven alternative treatment to make it into clinical, to make it to clinical prime time and be accepted as mainstream, it's unacceptably long. And I think there needs to be better ways to kind of differentiate what's working versus what isn't. Because yeah, like alternative medicine, I can see why it has a bad reputation because there's just so much going on there. And some of it right. is 
Like some people in that space do have nefarious motivations, but I think a lot of promising things are also coming out of unconventional thinking. So I don't think non-conventional thinking should be dismissed altogether because I do think novel thinking is necessary and it should be embraced. And I think I just feel that, you know, the ideas that are a little bit avant-garde, they don't need to be dismissed immediately just because they are not consensus. Because a lot of the time consensus is wrong. Like we, we're seeing this with amyloid beta and like that focus on Alzheimer's because for a long time, the idea that Alzheimer's has an infectious disease component, that there's a microbial part to it, that was considered to be to be sham. Like that that this is just too out there. Um, it doesn't hold credence because, you know, it's clearly amyloid beta that's the problem. And this idea just it fell by the wayside. Like the NIH would not sponsor anything that wasn't targeting amyloid beta. So we lost a lot of time and, you know, a lot of research dollars on an idea that just wasn't promising. And despite the repeated clinical trials showing absolutely no benefit, um, this stalwart like continued to exist. And like, it's, it's just really unhelpful. Like, I mean, you know, they kind of say that science advances one funeral at a time, but I feel like it's too slow, you know, like, um, there needs to be ways to accelerate the pace of progress. And actually, there is a new form of organizational structure called FROs, focused research organizations that right. I am really quite encouraged by because, you know, it's not quite industry, it's not quite academia, um, but they're basically centered around developing uh, strategies and solutions into like moonshot initiatives. Like if you have a very targeted specific problem that you're mm -hmm. trying to address, an FRO is quite nice because they basically function as like nonprofit startups, like it exists in the nonprofit space, but it's not slow moving. You don't have to deal with like the bureaucratic red tape and all the government hangups that you normally would being a nonprofit. Um, like the pace is on track with what you would expect in a startup. And I feel like that's like a really nice like go between like middle ground way to potentially get things done without getting just just, you know, trapped in like the proverbial bureaucratic quicksand for lack of a better yeah. way. Yeah, this is this is exciting. I want to go back to to a point you made about um you know life and kind of something uh what what is really special about life about this process of you know DNA kind of uh, giving rise to some manifestation of information stored within and then the cycle goes on with um you know with propagation of a species and and it is it is fascinating and it strikes me that you know there is something about it that the different thing there about all of life is that there is um there is communication and there is a self-ordering process going on there and this is also interesting to think about in um with regards to what we can do in terms of of philosophy and of thinking of introducing ideas into our minds. Um, so I'm wondering if you, if that was a part of your journey toward healing, do you feel that there was some uh, help coming from uh, this side of things where it's, you know, people would consider today? I'm, I'm very um, 
conscious of the fact that just today I had uh, a short uh, dialogue with somebody who said, you know, we should do away with the terms mental and physical because clearly they're really one thing. And I'm like, I, I agree, but I can't do it yet. <laughs> like, I'm not ready yet. Um, so I recognize that while I'm asking you the question, I'm still making that separation. And I I'm all hope that in the future, it'll be so clear to us that these are not just just one things, you know, aspects of one thing. Um, but in, in your journey, were you, were you experimenting with, uh, things to do with your, um, I don't know, any sort of mental technique or anything like that? I was, um, I think definitely, you know, the mental did help the physical and yeah, I agree that the delineation, it shouldn't exist, but it absolutely right. does. Um, See, I and agree too. And I still do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think just because it's just so pervasive in the vernacular, it's hard to get away from it now. But um, a lot of other things like besides FMT that really helped me out was paying attention to my circadian rhythms. Um, like, for example, aligning my feeding fasting cycle with my sleep wake cycle. Like this has a lot of mental health and physical health benefits. Um, just in terms of like, so like, for example, like, we would ideally want to concentrate the majority of our energy intake in terms of like consuming calories earlier in the day. And the reason being is because diet induced thermogenesis is higher in the day. Um, protein that you consume earlier in the day is more likely to be used for the purposes of making muscle versus protein consumed later in the day. So the, the, the timing of nutrient intake affects its metabolic end fate. So that's one thing. Um, but also just the fact that having an earlier feeding window tends to correlate with better metabolic health outcomes. Um, that's, that's something that's really, you know, quite profound in the way that you can actually figure out mechanistically why eating late at night is detrimental to you. So for one thing, um, generally in our evolutionary past, uh, when once you start to release melatonin, that will also blunt insulin secretion. And the reason that this happens is because you, we didn't used to have availability to food in the middle of the night. So the reason this happens is to keep our blood sugar stable in the middle of the night where we can't get food. And so that means if you do consume carbohydrates after dawn, um, I'm sorry, if you do consume af uh, carbohydrates after dark, then you're more likely to cause a, hypo, a hyperglycemic state. And that can, of course, lead to insulin intolerance down the road and influence your risk for diabetes. So making those small changes also helped a lot um, from both a mental health and a physical health standpoint, um, kind of like keeping a more regular bedtime, going to uh, keeping an earlier chronotype as well. Um, just we are designed humans to have a early chronotype, to be awake during the day and asleep at night. And there's a number mm. of reasons that working the graveyard shift drastically increases your risk for cardiovascular disease, for diabetes, for cancers, for all sorts of, you know, adverse health disease and health issues. Um, so it's, it's not true that some people are just night owls naturally and have a, a different preference about it. So there is some evidence that there are varying chronotypes in terms of the time at which you start to fall asleep and the time that you wake up. But that being hmm. said, um, everyone still has a generally early chronotype. And like, if you are a night owl, like depending on how late you think you might want to be up, 
um, there's a good chance that that is not your natural rhythm. It's just the fact that you're being stimulated by artificial lighting late at night. And if you were to get away from that um, and to maybe like limit your screen time um, three hours before bed and stuff, you would probably notice that you are going to fall asleep a little earlier. So um, a lot of the time we think that we have these much later cycles than we actually do because of the artificial stimulation that we're getting, mm-hmm. which is sending signals to our brain that it's daylight. And um, oftentimes, like this is just an artifact of the world that we live in more than our natural rhythm being that delayed. Um, to be sure, there are rhythms that are slightly more delayed, but um, you know, t- to think that you're the sort of person who always falls asleep at 2 a.m., you're, you're probably not. Gotcha. Yeah, well, you're making me very self-conscious since it's uh, it's almost 10 at night here and now I'm having this ring light in my face. Um, I wanted to um, ask you about something. You mentioned that uh, when what you basically experienced um, in your episode of, of getting sick, basically, after the, um, the unsuccessful or harmful uh, antibiotic treatment is kind of like a bomb going off in your body. And I'm wondering what would be your metaphor for the time when you feel things starting to click and communication to uh, start again. Um, yeah, what 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 did what what did it feel like to you every every little bit of improvement? Um, I think when things start to click, it sort of feels like maybe that part of the movie Theory of Everything, the one that the biopic on Stephen Hawking where, you you know, you have that track playing, like unlocking the secrets of the mind or, or maybe like, you know, that part of the Da Vinci Code where like, you know, like everything kind of just starts to make sense and like all the pieces start to fit together. It's mm. not always this big epiphany moment. Sometimes it happens so imperceptibly that you don't have this one big moment. But I think you do sort of start to see color in your life again. You start to hear symphonies again. Life takes on more meaning again. It goes from being this hollow, nihilistic thing that you're just having to grind through that maybe you don't even want to be here. Maybe you think it would be better to not be alive. And I think to have the sense of purpose come back in, to just have the hope even that you could have a better day ahead, that's what it feels like. It feels like a renewal. It actually, it feels like respair um, because respair is a word that I learned at the beginning of 2022 because there was this article, I think it was on either BBC or The Guardian, where they were talking about respair as being a period of hope and renewal from despair. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how I would describe it when things start to change. It's a period of respair. You know, you, you might not be where you want yet, you know, it might still be a work in progress. You're still evolving towards what you want. I mean, honestly, we're always evolving. But I just mean that you might not have hit your health goal yet in terms of being free from pain yet, in terms of being able to be functional yet, eating the foods you want, going where you want to travel, um, being able to be in social settings again. Maybe those things haven't happened yet, but there's still the hope of it. You can see the glimmer. Yeah. Um, you can see, you can visualize the light at the end of the tunnel. And I feel like once you're able to visualize it, that's in a good place. That's a good place to be. Even if you're not at the end of the tunnel, if you can see that there might be a way out, I think there's there's hope yet. 
No, yeah, that's that's beautiful. That's really beautiful, and it's really striking how, you know, in my mind, my mind is like racing with ideas and just making the analogies, and and really like in a, in a profound way for me right now, we're kind of making the, the the barrier that makes me still refer to the mental and the physical as different things kind of dissipate and and go away. So that's that's really beautiful, and. Um, I I think that uh, there's a point to be made there about how the analogy of something going wrong is that of a bomb of something very very abrupt and and just that happening at once whether the imperceptible improvement I think that in a lot of cases uh and for a lot of people it's it's the way down to that's imperceptible and that also then calls for these really abrupt changes that, you know, maybe there is still room for them in Western medicine. Is like maybe that's the thing that, that it does know how to do in a sense is to give you that, um, that really strong drug that is going to like shake up things and take it out of the downward spiral. Like if, if it does anything good, it, it may be that. Um, but we really want to get to a point where we live holistically and from the beginning understand that, as you say, basically we want our health to be a kind of imperceptible thing, right? The um, Just the uh, absence of problems, right? This is what health is. It's the, it's the absence of, of pathologies. And this is what we want to be. Uh, physically and mentally, oh, I'm going back to that again. But um, and this is what living well feels like. I think from the inside is just the absence of pathology. The pathology. There is no um, reason to get out of the way of just a, a, a truck that's coming at you full force or a train or something like that. And from there, there can be. Uh, beautiful things made and it's just a more natural way of then doing things not in a hurried way uh, not under pressure and just step by step making sure that you remain the ecosystem that you are the beautiful ecosystem healthy ecosystem that you are and also changing things around you to keep harmonizing um, the the environment which is then of course going to be um uh, nourishing to you. I'm, I really love that you said that because that reminds me of the concept of slow medicine. And there's actually a book by Victoria Sweet and it's called Slow Medicine, The Way to Healing. And basically, slow medicine was a response to the way that medicine is typically practiced, like in a rush, you know, in the, in the way that doctors, they typically, they come in, they'll take your health history, they'll maybe spend all of five, maybe 10 minutes with you and like the majority of their time is devoted to like insurance paperwork. And a lot of the time, right. even doctors have a lot of disillusionment with how the system is because, you know, they entered medicine with the idea of, you know, spending time with patients, like listening to their health concerns. And a lot of the time, the reality starkly contrasts with that. And slow medicine was sort of this alternative approach to, to like, you know, like, the fast food variant of medicine, uh, for lack of a better phrase. And, you know, basically I think maybe in 2002, um, they started using this in the vernacular 
to talk about the, the way in which a practitioner could use enough time um, and like use their wider social context in order to, you know, prevent things like prematurely releasing a patient from a hospital or doing more to reduce a patient's anxiety around their diagnosis. Um, like, yeah, slow medicine means not rushing when you're evaluating your patient. It means taking the time to not overdiagnose or overtreat. Um, it, it kind of, I'm, it kind of like points to like three words that it wants to be measured, it wants to be respectful, and it wants to be equitable. And this is trying to incorporate more of like the social and political aspects of medicine versus just the physiological uh, part of it, which is obviously important. But, you know, like you're saying, like treatment itself consists of placebo, which consists of mindset, which consists of belief, which consists of interactions with your practitioner. And yeah, um, like slow medicine has just been kind of embraced as like this more mindful way of practicing where you're paying attention to narrative, you're paying attention to what the patient is telling you because a good doctor knows that if you just listen to your patient, they will tell you everything you need to know. And, you know, Wiz William Osler, he was this, um, he was a physician in the early 20th century, um, practicing in the 1900s. And he talked about the importance of listening well. And um, the book Equanimitas, I think it, it's still one of like, you know, my, one of these books that I hold in the highest regard because he is going back to this concept of equanimity, which is kind of like alluding to what you're saying and, you know, being free from pathology, but not only being free from pathology, but also being healthy because like, I mean, you know, being free from pathology is one thing, but then also just embracing the good, um, like really, really living out fully you know, your purpose and like using your body for the things that you want to accomplish. Um, but I just, I, I very much admire a lot of the older physicians for like the wisdom that they imparted in terms of the importance of communication, the importance of listening, um, the importance of staying humble and open to suggestion, you know, the importance of acknowledging uncertainty, the fact that we don't know everything, we don't have all the answers and to acknowledge that humanity is so much better than having this pretense of, of, of godlike knowledge um, or like, you know, forbid ignorance, arrogance, just rejecting those things in favor for a more honest heart-to-heart -heart approach that says that I'm going to meet you to the best of my ability, um, hear what it is that you have to say, and if I do not have the answer... I will try to help you find someone who does. I just feel like that would be so much more impactful. And, you know, just I think it would restore a lot of people's faith in medicine, honestly, because I think the, you know, just the charade that I am a doctor, I am equivalent to a god, I have all right. the answers. It's not helping anyone. It's just not true. You know, we're never going to have all the answers. I think. It's better to acknowledge that. I personally respect practitioners much more when they're upfront with me about their limitations or what they don't know or what they can't yeah. help with. I appreciate yeah. that a lot more than when they say, you know, like a lot of practitioners have this idea that if they don't know the answer, it's your fault. Like it's the patient's fault. And then they'll resort to psychologizing the patient's symptoms rather than digging deeper, rather than referring them to a specialist or just saying, I don't know. 
they'll just say that, you know, this is probably you just being depressed. You're just anxious. You're just stressed. Just kind of like writing them off. And that doesn't help anyone because then, you know, that patient has to deal with on top of the stress of their illness, they have to deal with like, you know, the medical trauma of being gaslit by a practitioner who was supposed to help them. So. um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we've gone full circle again to the, to the realm of, of communication and having uh, clear and honest uh, communication. Yeah. I feel like, um, I feel like uh, we, we reached some sort of, of, of climax with this because I don't think it's obvious at the beginning how this is going to kind of come together, the ideas about uh, medicine and about, yeah, but anyway, it all, it all just blends together uh, perfectly. And uh, I'm really happy. I'm being mindful of the fact that my circadian rhythm is kind of sending me signals as well. Um, and uh, let me just tell you that I'm really impressed with the uh, walking, breathing, living ecosystem of knowledge that you are, uh, Nitha. So thank you so much for enlightening me in so many ways. And I still have to go down numerous rabbit holes just to catch up in the in the slightest of ways. Um, I, I'd like for you to uh, let listeners know uh, what you're up to and um, anything else that you might want to to share with listeners. Yeah, no, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate the dialogue that we've had here. Just any chance to have this human connection, I really appreciate. Um, so these days I'm mostly focusing on writing, podcasting, and research. Um, and basically the podcast newsletter that I run is called Evolving with Nita Jane, and it's mostly devoted to health, science, and self-development. And the URL for that is just nitajane.substack.com. And I've I've just recently transitioned into interviewing, so I'm definitely trying to take a page from your book in terms of just host etiquette. And I, I just I definitely look up to you as like a great example of what a host should be. So I really appreciate you modeling for me. And yeah, I really do appreciate your time and I hope we can do this again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for your kind words. And yeah, already looking forward to more conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you.